Part Two of Book Eleven, Chapter One of The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter One The Little Shoe, Part Two. A guttural laugh replied from the interior of the wall to these bloody words. Ha, ha, ha! The gypsy watched the priest retire in the direction of the Pont Notre Dame. A cavalcade was heard in that direction. The young girl had recognized the spiteful recluse. Panting with terror, she tried to disengage herself. She writhed, she made many starts of agony and despair, but the other held her with incredible strength. The lean and bony fingers which bruised her clenched on her flesh and met around it. One would have said that this hand was riveted to her arm. It was more than a chain, more than a fetter, more than a ring of iron. It was a living pair of pincers endowed with intelligence, which emerged from the wall. She fell back against the wall exhausted, and then the fear of death took possession of her. She thought of the beauty of life, of youth, of the view of heaven, the aspects of nature, of her love for Phoebus of all that was vanishing and all that was approaching, of the priest who was denouncing her, of the headsman who was to come, of the gallows which was there. Then she felt terror mount to the very roots of her hair, and she heard the mocking laugh of the recluse saying to her in a very low tone, Ha, ha, ha! You are to be hanged! She turned a dying look towards the window and she beheld the fierce face of the sacked nun through the bars. "'What have I done to you?' she said, almost lifeless. The recluse did not reply, but began to mumble with a sing-song, irritated, mocking intonation. "'Daughter of Egypt, daughter of Egypt, daughter of Egypt!' The unhappy Esmeralda dropped her head beneath her flowing hair, comprehending that it was no human being she had to deal with. All at once the recluse exclaimed, as though the gypsy's question had taken all this time to reach her brain, "'What have you done to me, you say? Ah, what have you done to me, gypsy? Well, listen, I had a child, you see, I had a child, a child, I tell you, a pretty little girl, my Agnes!' She went on wildly, kissing something in the dark. "'Well, do you see, daughter of Egypt?' They took my child from me, they stole my child, they ate my child. That is what you have done to me." The young girl replied like a lamb. "'Alas, perchance I was not born then.' "'Oh, yes,' returned the recluse, "'you must have been born. You were among them. She would be the same age as you. So I have been here fifteen years. Fifteen years have I suffered, fifteen years have I prayed, fifteen years have I beat my head against these four walls. I tell you that twas the gypsies who stole her from me, do you hear that? Who ate her with their teeth. Have you a heart? Imagine a child playing, a child sucking, a child sleeping. It is so innocent a thing. Well, that— that is what they took from me, what they killed. The good God knows it well. Today it is my turn. I am going to eat the gypsy. 
Oh, I would bite you well, if the bars did not prevent me. My head is too large. Poor little one, while she was asleep. And if they woke her up when they took her, in vain she might cry, I was not there. Ah, gypsy mothers, you devoured my child. Come see your own." Then she began to laugh or to gnash her teeth, for the two things resembled each other in that furious face. The day was beginning to dawn. An ashy gleam dimly lighted this scene, and the gallows grew more and more distinct in the square. On the other side, in the direction of the bridge of Notre Dame, the poor condemned girl fancied that she heard the sound of cavalry approaching. "'Madam!' she cried, clasping her hands and falling on her knees, disheveled, distracted, mad with fright. "'Madam, have pity! They are coming! I have done nothing to you. Would you wish to see me die in this horrible fashion before your very eyes? You are pitiful, I am sure. It is too frightful. Let me make my escape. Release me. Mercy! I do not wish to die like that." "'Give me back my child,' said the recluse. "'Mercy! Mercy!' "'Give me back my child!' Release me in the name of heaven. Give me back my child. Again the young girl fell, exhausted, broken, and having already the glassy eye of a person in the grave. Alas, she faltered, you seek your child, I seek my parents. Give me back my little Agnes, pursued Goudelet. You do not know where she is? Then die! I will tell you. I was a woman of the town. I had a child. They took my child. It was the gypsies. You see plainly that you must die. When your mother, the gypsy, comes to reclaim you, I shall say to her, Mother, look at that gibbet, or give me back my child. Do you know where she is, my little daughter? Stay, I will show you. Here is her shoe, all that is left me of her. Do you know where its mate is? If you know, tell me, and if it is only at the other end of the world, I will crawl to it on my knees." As she spoke thus, with her other arm extended through the window, she showed the gypsy the little embroidered shoe. It was already light enough to distinguish its shape and its colors. "'Let me see that shoe.' said the gypsy, quivering. God! God! And at the same time, with her hand which was at liberty, she quickly opened the little bag ornamented with green glass, which she wore about her neck. "'Go on, go on,' grumbled Goudelet. "'Search your demon's amulet!' All at once she stopped short, trembled in every limb, and cried in a voice which proceeded from the very depths of her being. My daughter! The gypsy had just drawn from the bag a little shoe absolutely similar to the other. To this little shoe was attached a parchment on which was inscribed this charm Quan le paral retrouvare, to mère te tendre le bras. When thou shalt find its mate, thy mother will stretch out her arms to thee. 
Quicker than a flash of lightning, the recluse had laid the two shoes together, had read the parchment, and had put close to the bars of the window her face beaming with celestial joy as she cried, "'My daughter! My daughter!' "'My mother!' said the gypsy. Here we are unequal to the task of depicting the scene. The wall and the iron bars were between them. "'Oh, the wall!' cried the recluse. "'Oh, to see her and not to embrace her! Your hand! Your hand!' The young girl passed her arm through the opening. The recluse threw herself on that hand, pressed her lips to it, and there remained, buried in that kiss, giving no other sign of life than a sob which heaved her breast from time to time. In the meanwhile she wept in torrents, in silence, in the dark, like a rain at night. The poor mother poured out in floods upon that adored hand the dark and deep well of tears which lay within her, and into which her grief had filtered, drop by drop, for fifteen years. All at once she rose, flung aside her long gray hair from her brow, and without uttering a word began to shake the bars of her cage-cell, with both hands, more furiously than a lioness. The bars held firm. Then she went to seek in the corner of her cell a huge paving-stone, which served as her pillow, and launched it against them with such violence that one of the bars broke, emitting thousands of sparks. A second blow completely shattered the old iron cross which barricaded the window. Then, with her two hands, she finished breaking and removing the rusted stumps of the bars. There are moments when woman's hands possess superhuman strength. A passage broken, less than a minute was required for her to seize her daughter by the middle of her body and draw her into the cell. "'Come, let me draw you out of the abyss,' she murmured. When her daughter was inside the cell she laid her gently on the ground, then raised her up again, and bearing her in her arms as though she were still only her little Agnes, she walked to and fro in her little room, intoxicated, frantic, joyous, crying out, singing, kissing her daughter, talking to her, bursting into laughter, melting into tears, all at once and with vehemence. "'My daughter! My daughter!' she said. I have my daughter. Here she is. The good God has given her back to me. Ha, ah, you, come all of you. Is there anyone there to see that I have my daughter? Lord Jesus, how beautiful she is! You have made me wait fifteen years, my good God, but it was in order to give her back to me beautiful. Then the gypsies did not eat her. Who said so? My little daughter, my little daughter! Kiss me, those good gypsies! I love the gypsies! It is really you! That was what made my heart leap every time that you passed by! And I took that for hatred! Forgive me, my Agnes, forgive me! You thought me very malicious, did you not? I love you. Have you still the little mark on your neck? Let us see. She still has it. Oh, you are beautiful! It was I who gave you those big eyes, mademoiselle. Kiss me. I love you. It is nothing to me that other mothers have children. I scorn them now. They have only to come and see. Here is mine. See her neck, her eyes, her hair, her hands. Find me anything as beautiful as that. 
Oh, I promise you she will have lovers, that she will. I have wept for fifteen years. All my beauty has departed and has fallen to her. Kiss me." She addressed her to a thousand other extravagant remarks, whose accent constituted her sole beauty, disarranged the poor girl's garments even to the point of making her blush, smoothed her silky hair with her hand, kissed her foot, her knee, her brow, her eyes, was in raptures over everything. The young girl let her have her way, repeating at intervals, and very low, and with infinite tenderness, "'My mother!' "'Do you see, my little girl?' resumed the recluse, interspersing her words with kisses. "'I shall love you dearly. We will go away from here. We are going to be very happy.' I have inherited something in rhymes, in our country. You know rhymes? Ah, no, you do not know it. You were too small. If you only knew how pretty you were at the age of four months! Tiny feet, that people came even from Epernay, which is seven leagues away, to see. We shall have a field, a house. I will put you to sleep in my bed. My God! My God! Who would believe this? I have my daughter." "'Oh, my mother,' said the young girl, at length finding strength to speak in her emotion. "'The gypsy woman told me so. There was a good gypsy of our band who died last year, who has always cared for me like a nurse. It was she who placed this little bag about my neck. She always said to me, "'Little one, guard this jewel well, tis a treasure.' it will cause thee to find thy mother once again. Thou wearest thy mother about thy neck. The gypsy predicted it." The sacked nun again pressed her daughter in her arms. "'Come, let me kiss you. You say that prettily. When we are in the country we will place these little shoes on an infant Jesus in the church. We certainly owe that to the good holy virgin. What a pretty voice you have! When you spoke to me just now, it was music. Ah, my Lord God, I have found my child again. But is this story credible? Nothing will kill one, or I should have died of joy." And then she began to clap her hands again, and to laugh and to cry out, "'We are going to be so happy!' At that moment the cell resounded with the clang of arms and the galloping of horses, which seemed to be coming from the Pont Notre-Dame, amid advancing farther and farther along the quay. The gypsy threw herself with anguish into the arms of the sacked nun. "'Save me! Save me, mother! They are coming!' "'Oh, heaven! What are you saying? I had forgotten. They are in pursuit of you. What have you done?' "'I know not,' replied the unhappy child but I am condemned to die." "'To die,' said Goudelet, staggering as though struck by lightning. "'To die!' she repeated slowly, gazing at her daughter with staring eyes. "'Yes, mother,' replied the frightened young girl. "'They want to kill me. They are coming to seize me. That gallows is for me. Save me, save me. They are coming. Save me.' The recluse remained for several moments motionless and petrified, then she moved her head in a sign of doubt, and suddenly, giving vent to a burst of laughter, 
but with that terrible laugh which had come back to her. Ho, oh, oh, ho, no! Tis a dream of which you are telling me. Ah, yes, I lost her, that lasted fifteen years, and then I found her again, and that lasted a minute. And they would take her from me again. And now, when she is beautiful, when she is grown up, when she speaks to me, when she loves me, it is now that they would come to devour her before my very eyes, and I, her mother. Oh, no, these things are not possible. The good God does not permit such things as that." Here the cavalcade appeared to halt, and a voice was heard to say in the distance, "'This way, Monsieur Tristan. The priest says that we shall find her at the rat-hole.' The noise of the horses began again. The recluse sprang to her feet with a shriek of despair. "'Fly! Fly, my child! All comes back to me. You are right. It is your death. Horror! Maledictions! Fly!' She thrust her head through the window and withdrew it again hastily. "'Remain,' she said in a low, curt and lugubrious tone as she pressed the hand of the gypsy, who was more dead than alive. "'Remain. Do not breathe. There are soldiers everywhere. You cannot get out. It is too light.' Her eyes were dry and burning. She remained silent for a moment, but she paced the cell hurriedly, and halted now and then to pluck out handfuls of her grey hairs, which she afterwards tore with her teeth. Suddenly she said, "'They draw near. I shall speak with them. Hide yourself in this corner. They will not see you. I will tell them that you have made your escape, that I released you, i'faith.' She set her daughter down, for she was still carrying her, in one corner of the cell which was not visible from without. She made her crouch down, arranged her carefully, so that neither foot nor hand projected from the shadow, untied her black hair, which she spread over her white robe to conceal it, placed in front of her her jug and her paving-stone, the only articles of furniture which she possessed, imagining that this jug and stone would hide her. And when this was finished, she became more tranquil, and knelt down to pray. The day, which was only dawning, still left many shadows in the rat-hole. At that moment the voice of the priest, that infernal voice, passed very close to the cell, crying, "'This way, Captain Phoebus de Chateaupay!' At that name, at that voice, La Esmeralda, crouching in her corner, made a movement. "'Do not stir!' said Goudelet. She had barely finished when a tumult of men, swords and horses halted around the cell. The mother rose quickly and went to post herself before her window, in order to stop it up. She beheld a large troop of armed men, both horse and foot, drawn up on the greve. The commander dismounted and came to order. "'Old woman,' said this man, who had an atrocious face, "'we are in search of a witch to hang her.' We were told that you had her." The poor mother assumed as indifferent an air as she could, and replied, "'I know not what you mean.' The other resumed, "'Tetu! What was it that frightened archdeacon said? Where is he?' "'Monseigneur,' said a soldier, "'he has disappeared.' "'Come now, old madwoman,' began the commander again. Do not lie. A sorceress was given in charge to you. 
What have you done with her? The recluse did not wish to deny all, for fear of awakening suspicion, and replied in a sincere and surly tone, If you are speaking of a big young girl who was put into my hands a while ago, I will tell you that she bit me, and that I released her. There, leave me in peace." The commander made a grimace of disappointment. "'Don't lie to me, old spectre,' said he. "'My name is Tristan Lermite, and I am the king's gossip. Tristan the hermit, do you hear?' he added, as he glanced at the plaster grave around him. "'Tis a name which has an echo here.' "'You might be Satan the hermit,' replied Goudelet, who was regaining hope. "'But I should have nothing else to say to you, and I should never be afraid of you.' "'Tetu,' said Tristan, "'here is a crone. Ah, so the witch-girl hath fled. And in which direction did she go?' Goudelet replied in a careless tone. "'Through the Rue de Montone, I believe.' Tristan turned his head and made a sign to his troop to prepare to set out on the march again. The recluse breathed freely once more. "'Monseigneur,' suddenly said an archer, "'ask the old elf why the bars of her window are broken in this manner.' This question brought anguish again to the heart of the miserable mother. Nevertheless, she did not lose all presence of mind. "'They have always been thus,' she stammered. Bah! retorted the archer. Only yesterday they still formed a fine black cross, which inspired devotion. Tristan cast a sidelong glance at the recluse. I think the old dame is getting confused. The unfortunate woman felt that all depended on her self-possession, and although with death in her soul, she began to grin. Mothers possess such strength. Bah! said she. The man is drunk. Tis more than a year since the tail of a stone-cart dashed against my window and broke in the grating. And how I curse the carter, too!" "'Tis true,' said another archer. "'I was there.' Always and everywhere people are to be found who have seen everything. This unexpected testimony from the archer re-encouraged the recluse, whom this interrogatory was forcing to cross an abyss on the edge of a knife but she was condemned to a perpetual alternative of hope and alarm. "'If it was a cart which did it,' retorted the first soldier, "'the stumps of the bar should be thrust inwards, while they actually are pushed outwards.' "'Oh, ho!' said Tristan to the soldier. "'You have the nose of an inquisitor of the Chatelet. Reply to what he says, old woman.' "'Good heavens!' she exclaimed, driven to bay, and in a voice that was full of tears, in despite of her efforts, "'I swear to you, Monseigneur, that twas a cart which broke those bars. You heard the man who saw it, and then what has that to do with your gypsy?' "'Hum!' growled Tristan. "'The devil!' went on the soldier, flattered by the provost's praise. "'These fractures of the iron are perfectly fresh!' Tristan tossed his head. She turned pale. "'How long ago, say you, did the cart do it?' "'A month, a fortnight, perhaps, monsieur. I know not.' 
She first said more than a year, observed the soldier. That is suspicious, said the provost. Monseigneur, she cried, still pressed against the opening, and trembling, lest suspicion should lead them to thrust their heads through and look into her cell. Monseigneur, I swear to you that twas a cart which broke this grating. I swear it to you by the angels of paradise. If it was not a cart, may I be eternally damned, and I reject God." "'You put a great deal of heat into that oath,' said Tristan, with his inquisitorial glance. The poor woman felt her assurance vanishing more and more. She had reached the point of blundering, and she comprehended with terror that she was saying what she ought not to have said. Here another soldier came up, crying, "'Monsieur, the old hag lies! The sorceress did not flee through the Rue de Mouton. The street-chain has remained stretched all night, and the chain-guard has seen no one pass.' Tristan, whose face became more sinister with every moment, addressed the recluse. "'What have you to say to that?' She tried to make head against this new incident. "'That I do not know, Monseigneur, that I may have been mistaken. I believe, in fact, that she crossed the water.' "'That is in the opposite direction,' said the provost. "'And it is not very likely that she would wish to re-enter the city where she was being pursued. You are lying, old woman.' "'And then,' added the first soldier, "'there is no boat either on this side of the stream or on the other.' She swam across, replied the recluse, defending her ground foot by foot. Do women swim? said the soldier. Tete old woman, you are lying, repeated Tristan angrily. I have a good mind to abandon that sorceress and take you. A quarter of an hour of torture will, perchance, draw the truth from your throat. Come, you are to follow us. She seized on these words with avidity. "'As you please, Monseigneur. Do it! Do it! Torture! I am willing! Take me away! Quick! Quick! Let us set out at once!' During that time, she said to herself, my daughter will make her escape. "'Steth!' said the provost. "'What an appetite for the rack! I understand not this madwoman at all!' An old, grey-haired sergeant of the guard stepped out of the ranks, and, addressing the provost, "'Mad in sooth, Monseigneur. If she released the gypsy, it was not her fault, for she loves not the gypsies. I have been of the watch these fifteen years, and I hear her every evening cursing the Bohemian women with endless imprecations. If the one of whom we are in pursuit is, as I suppose, the little dancer with the goat, she detests that one above all the rest." Goudelet made an effort and said, "'That one above all!' The unanimous testimony of the men of the watch confirmed the old sergeant's words to the provost. Tristan Lamette, in despair at extracting anything from the recluse, turned his back on her, and with unspeakable anxiety she beheld him direct his course slowly towards his horse. Come he said between his teeth, "'March on! Let us set out again on the quest. I shall not sleep until that gypsy is hanged!' 
but he still hesitated for some time before mounting his horse. Goudelet palpitated between life and death, and as she beheld him cast about the place, that uneasy look of a hunting-dog which instinctively feels that the lair of the beast is close to him and is loath to go away. At length he shook his head and leaped into his saddle. Goudelet's horribly compressed heart now dilated, and she said in a low voice, as she cast a glance at her daughter, whom she had not ventured to look at while they were there, Saved! The poor child had remained all this time in her corner without breathing, without moving, with the idea of death before her. She had lost nothing of the scene between Goudelet and Tristan, and the anguish of her mother had found its echo in her heart. She had heard all the successive snappings of the thread by which she hung suspended over the gulf. Twenty times she had fancied that she saw it break and at last she began to breathe again and to feel her foot on firm ground. At that moment she heard a voice saying to the provost, Corbeuf, Monsieur le Provost, tis no affair of mine, a man of arms, to hang witches. The rabble of the populace is suppressed. I leave you to attend to the matter alone. You will allow me to rejoin my company, who are waiting for their captain. The voice was that of Phoebus de Chateaupay. That which took place within her was ineffable. He was there, her friend, her protector, her support, her refuge, her Phoebus. She rose, and before her mother could prevent her, she had rushed to the window, crying, Phoebus, aid me, my Phoebus! Phoebus was no longer there. He had just turned the corner of the Rue de la Coutellerie at a gallop. But Tristan had not yet taken his departure. The recluse rushed upon her daughter with a roar of agony. She dragged her violently back, digging her nails into her neck. A tigress mother does not stand on trifles. But it was too late. Tristan had seen. Eh, hey! he exclaimed with a laugh which laid bare all his teeth and made his face resemble the muzzle of a wolf. Two mice in the trap! I suspected as much, said the soldier. Tristan clapped him on the shoulder. You are a good cat. Come, he added, where is Henriet Cousin? A man who had neither the garments nor the air of a soldier stepped from the ranks. He wore a costume half gray, half brown, flat hair, leather sleeves, and carried a bundle of ropes in his huge hand. This man always attended Tristan, who always attended Louis the Eleventh. "'Friend,' said Tristan Larmette, "'I presume that this is the sorceress of whom we are in search. You will hang me this one. Have you your ladder?' There is one yonder, under the shed of the pillar-house," replied the man. "'Is it on this justice that the thing is to be done?' he added, pointing to the stone gibbet. "'Yes.' "'Oh, hey!' continued the man with a huge laugh, which was still more brutal than that of the provost. "'We shall not have far to go.' "'Make haste,' said Tristan. "'You shall laugh afterwards.' In the meantime the recluse had not uttered another word since Tristan had seen her daughter and all hope was lost. 
She had flung the poor gypsy, half-dead, into the corner of the cellar, and had placed herself once more at the window with both hands resting on the angle of the sill like two claws. In this attitude she was seen to cast upon all the soldiers her glance, which had become wild and frantic once more. At the moment when René Cousin approached her cell, she showed him so savage a face that he shrank back. Monseigneur, he said, returning to the provost, which am I to take? The young one. So much the better, for the old one seemeth difficult. Poor little dancer with the goat, said the old sergeant of the watch. René Cousin approached the window again. The mother's eyes made his own droop. He said with a good deal of timidity, Madam, she interrupted him in a very low but furious voice. What do you ask? It is not you, he said. It is the other. What other? The young one. She began to shake her head, crying, There is no one, there is no one, there is no one. Yes, there is, retorted the hangman, and you know it well. Let me take the young one. I have no wish to harm you." She said with a strange sneer, "'Ah, so you have no wish to harm me!' "'Let me have the other, madam. Tis Monsieur the Provost who wills it.' She repeated with a look of madness, "'There is no one here.' "'I tell you that there is,' replied the executioner. We have all seen that there are two of you." "'Look, then,' said the recluse with a sneer, "'thrust your head through the window.' The executioner observed the mother's fingernails and dared not. "'Make haste!' shouted Tristan, who had just ranged his troops in a circle round the rat-hole, and who sat on his horse beside the gallows. René returned once more to the provost in great embarrassment. He had flung his rope on the ground, and was twisting his hat between his hands with an awkward air. "'Monseigneur,' he asked, "'where am I to enter?' "'By the door.' "'There is none.' "'By the window.' "'Tis too small.' "'Make it larger,' said Tristan angrily. "'Have you not pickaxes?' The mother still looked on steadfastly from the depths of her cavern. She no longer hoped for anything, she no longer knew what she wished, except that she did not wish them to take her daughter. René Cousin went in search of the chest of tools for the nightmen, under the shed of the pillar-house. He drew from it also the double ladder, which he immediately set up against the gallows. Five or six of the provost's men armed themselves with picks and crowbars, and Tristan betook himself, in company with them, towards the window. "'Old woman,' said the provost, in a severe tone, "'deliver up to us the girl quietly.' She looked at him like one who does not understand. "'Tet you,' continued Tristan. Why do you try to prevent this sorceress being hung as it pleases the king?" The wretched woman began to laugh in her wild way. "'Why, she is my daughter!' 
The tone in which she pronounced these words made even Henriet Cousin shudder. "'I am sorry for that,' said the provost. "'But it is the king's good pleasure.' She cried, redoubling her terrible laugh. "'What is your king to me? I tell you that she is my daughter!' "'Pierce the wall,' said Tristan. In order to make a sufficiently wide opening, it sufficed to dislodge one course of stone below the window. When the mother heard the picks and crowbars mining her fortress, she uttered a terrible cry. Then she began to stride about her cell with frightful swiftness, a wild beast's habit which her cage had imparted to her. She no longer said anything, but her eyes flamed. The soldiers were chilled to the very soul. All at once she seized her paving-stone, laughed, and hurled it with both fists upon the workmen. The stone, badly flung, for her hands trembled, touched no one, and fell short under the feet of Tristan's horse. She gnashed her teeth. In the meantime, although the sun had not yet risen, it was broad daylight. A beautiful rose-color enlivened the ancient, decayed chimneys of the pillar-house. It was the hour when the earliest windows of the great city opened joyously on the roofs. Some workmen, a few fruit-sellers on their way to the markets on their asses, began to traverse the greve. They halted for a moment before this group of soldiers clustered round the rat-hole, stared at it with an air of astonishment, and passed on. The recluse had gone and seated herself by her daughter covering her with her body, in front of her with staring eyes, listening to the poor child who did not stir, but who kept murmuring in a low voice these words only, Phoebus! Phoebus! In proportion as the work of the demolisher seemed to advance, the mother mechanically retreated, and pressed the young girl closer and closer to the wall. All at once the recluse beheld the stone, for she was standing guard and never took her eyes from it, move, and she heard Tristan's voice encouraging the workers. Then she aroused from the depression into which she had fallen during the last few moments, cried out, and as she spoke, her voice now rent the ear like a saw, then stammered as though all kind of maledictions were pressing to her lips to burst forth at once. Ho, ho, ho! Why, this is terrible! You are ruffians! Are you really going to take my daughter? Oh, the cowards! Oh, the hangman lackeys! The wretched blackguard assassins! Help! Help! Fire! Will they take my child from me like this? Who is it, then, who is called the good God? Then, addressing Tristan, foaming at the mouth, with wild eyes, all bristling and on all fours like a female panther. Draw near and take my daughter. Do not you understand that this woman tells you that she is my daughter? Do you know what it is to have a child? Eh, lynx, have you never lain with your female? Have you never had a cub? And if you have little ones, when they howl, have you nothing in your vitals that moves? Throw down the stone, said Tristan. It no longer holds. The crowbars raised the heavy course. It was, as we have said, the mother's last bulwark. 
She threw herself upon it. She tried to hold it back. She scratched the stone with her nails. But the massive block, set in movement by six men, escaped her and glided gently to the ground along the iron levers. The mother, perceiving an entrance effected, fell down in front of the opening, barricading the breach with her body, beating the pavement with her head, and shrieking with a voice rendered so hoarse by fatigue that it was barely audible. Help! Fire! Fire! Now take the wench, said Tristan, still impassive. The mother gazed at the soldiers in such formidable fashion that they were more inclined to retreat than to advance. Come now, repeated the provost. Here you, René Cousin. No one took a step. The provost swore. Tete de Christ! My men of war, afraid of a woman! Monseigneur, said René, do you call that a woman? She has the mane of a lion, said another. Come, repeated the provost, the gap is wide enough. Enter three abreast, as at the breach of Pantois. Let us make an end of it, death of Mahome. I will make two pieces of the first man who draws back." Placed between the provost and the mother, both threatening, the soldiers hesitated for a moment, then took their resolution and advanced towards the rat-hole. When the recluse saw this, she rose abruptly on her knees, flung aside her hair from her face, then let her thin, flayed hands fall by her side. Then great tears fell, one by one, from her eyes. They flowed down her cheeks through a furrow, like a torrent through a bed which it has hollowed for itself. At the same time she began to speak, but in a voice so supplicating, so gentle, so submissive, so heart-rending, that more than one old convict warder around Tristan, who must have devoured human flesh, wiped his eyes. Monsieurs, Messieurs the sergeants, one word. There is one thing which I must say to you. She is my daughter, do you see? My dear little daughter, whom I had lost. Listen, it is quite a history. Consider that I knew the sergeants very well. They were always good to me in the days when the little boys threw stones at me, because I led a life of pleasure. Do you see? You will leave me my child when you know. I was a poor woman of the town. It was the Bohemians who stole her from me. And I kept her shoe for fifteen years. Stay, here it is. That was the kind of foot which he had. At Rheims, La Chante Fleurie, Rufaupain. Perchance you knew about that. It was I. In your youth, then, there was a merry time, when one passed good hours. You will take pity on me, will you not, gentlemen? The gypsies stole her from me. They hid her from me for fifteen years. I thought her dead. Fancy, my good friends, believed her to be dead. I have passed fifteen years here in this cellar without a fire in winter. It is hard. The poor dear little shoe. 
I have cried so much that the good God has heard me. This night he has given my daughter back to me. It is a miracle of the good God. She was not dead. You will not take her from me, I am sure. If it were myself, I would say nothing. But she, a child of sixteen. Leave her time to see the sun. What has she done to you? Nothing at all. Nor have I. If you did but know that she is all I have, that I am old, that she is a blessing which the Holy Virgin has sent to me. And yet you are all so good. You did not know that she was my daughter, but now you do know it. Oh, I love her. Monsieur the Grand Provost, I would prefer a stab in my own vitals to a scratch on her finger. You have the air of such a good lord. What have I told you explains the matter, does it not? Oh, if you have had a mother, Monseigneur, you are the captain, leave me my child. Consider that I pray you on my knees, as one prays to Jesus Christ. I ask nothing of anyone. I am from Rhymes, gentlemen. I own a little field inherited from my uncle, Mahier Pradon. I am no beggar. I wish nothing, but I do want my child. Oh, I want to keep my child! The good God, who is the master, has not given her back to me for nothing. The king! You say the king! It would not cause him much pleasure to have my little daughter killed. And then the king is good. She is my daughter. She is my own daughter. She belongs not to the king. She is not yours. I want to go away. We want to go away. And when two women pass, one a mother and the other a daughter, one lets them go. Let us pass. We belong in rhymes. Oh, you are very good, messieurs the sergeants. I love you all. You will not take my dear little one. It is impossible. It is utterly impossible, is it not? My child, my child. We will not try to give an idea of her gestures, her tone, of the tears which she swallowed as she spoke, of the hands which she clasped and then wrung of the heart-breaking smiles, of the swimming glances, of the groans, the sighs, the miserable and affecting cries which she mingled with her disordered, wild, and incoherent words. When she became silent, Tristan Lermite frowned, but it was to conceal a tear which welled up in his tiger's eye. He conquered this weakness, however, and said in a curt tone, "'The king wills it.' Then he bent down to the ear of René Cousin, and said to him in a very low tone, "'Make an end of it quickly.' Possibly the redoubtable provost felt his heart also failing him. The executioner and the sergeants entered the cell. The mother offered no resistance. Only she dragged herself towards her daughter and threw herself bodily upon her. The gypsy beheld the soldiers approach. The horror of death reanimated her. "'Mother!' she shrieked, in a tone of indescribable distress. "'Mother! 
They're coming. Defend me. Yes, my love, I am defending you, replied the mother in a dying voice, and clasping her closely in her arms, she covered her with kisses. The two lying thus on the earth, the mother upon the daughter, presented a spectacle worthy of pity. Renée Cousin grasped the young girl by the middle of her body, beneath her beautiful shoulders. When she felt that hand she cried, and fainted. The executioner, who was shedding large tears upon her, drop by drop, was about to bear her away in his arms. He tried to detach the mother, who had, so to speak, knotted her hands around her daughter's waist. But she clung so strongly to her child that it was impossible to separate them. Then Renée Cousin dragged the young girl outside the cell, and the mother after her. The mother's eyes were also closed. At that moment the sun rose, and there was already on the place a fairly numerous assembly of people who looked on from a distance at what was being thus dragged along the pavement to the gibbet. For that was Provost Tristan's way at executions. He had a passion for preventing the approach of the curious. There was no one at the windows. Only at a distance at the summit of that one of the towers of Notre-Dame which commands the Greve, two men, outlined in black against the light morning sky, who seemed to be looking on, were visible. René Cousin paused at the foot of the fatal ladder, with that which he was dragging, and barely breathing, with so much pity did the thing inspire him, he passed the rope around the lovely neck of the young girl. The unfortunate child felt the horrible touch of the hemp. She raised her eyelids and saw the fleshless arm of the stone gallows extended above her head. Then she shook herself and shrieked in a loud and heart-rending voice, "'No! No! I will not!' Her mother, whose head was buried and concealed in her daughter's garments, said not a word. Only her whole body could be seen to quiver, and she was heard to redouble her kisses on her child. The executioner took advantage of this moment to hastily loose the arms with which she clasped the condemned girl. Either through exhaustion or despair she let him have his way. Then he took the young girl on his shoulder, from which the charming creature hung, gracefully bent over his large head. Then he set his foot on the ladder in order to ascend. At that moment the mother, who was crouching on the pavement, opened her eyes wide. Without uttering a cry, she raised herself erect with a terrible expression. Then she flung herself upon the hand of the executioner, like a beast on its prey, and bit it. It was done like a flash of lightning. The headsman howled with pain. Those nearby rushed up. With difficulty they withdrew his bleeding hand from the mother's teeth. She preserved a profound silence. They thrust her back with much brutality, and noticed that her head fell heavily on the pavement. They raised her, she fell back again. She was dead. The executioner, who had not loosed his hold on the young girl, began to ascend the ladder once more. End of Book 11, Chapter 1